It's the last day of the year 2021. I'm Smita Nair. This is your weekly fix. This year, India ranked 142 out of 180 countries in the World Press Freedom Index. And nowhere is being a journalist tougher than in Kashmir. Sure, the complete communications blackout, the longest ever in any democracy following the stripping of Jammu and Kashmir's special status on the 5th of August 2019, made reporting nearly impossible. But even routinely, Kashmiri journalists face a violation of their rights, the threat of being detained, interrogated without apparent cause, of being charged under the anti-terror law UAPA, of their homes being raided, of being stripped of their dignity. Anuradha Bhaseen, editor of the Kashmir Times, one of the oldest English dailies in Jammu and Kashmir, has been one of the loudest and most prominent voices advocating for press freedom. It was Bhaseen who moved the Supreme Court against the Modi government's unprecedented and total communications blackout. Her petition was instrumental in getting the Supreme Court to push the government to relax curbs on communication and be transparent about its restriction orders. Kashmir Times was founded by her father Ved Bhaseen in 1955. Anuradha started as a trainee in the early 90s, a time of terrible violence in the valley. Anuradha has experienced firsthand the threats and intimidation by both militants and the state. To keep a daily running while sidestepping the pressures to toe the line and despite the squeezing of finances by withdrawal of government advertising and the threat of tax raids is no stroll around the dull lake. So, what is it like being a journalist in Kashmir in 2021? Let's ask Anuradha Bhaseen. Anuradha Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for having me here. Um what is the biggest lie the government has said of the situation in Jammu and Kashmir post August 5th 2019 a lie that local news persons couldn't perhaps at the time fact check and subsequently communicate to their readers or indeed those living outside of the state but you now know to be a lie. you know it's very difficult to answer any one particular lie it's been a lie throughout uh, right from the very beginning that uh, things are normal things are under control there is uh, no uh, human rights are violated no civil liberties are curtailed people are going about their normal lives right from the very first day that we heard or the kind of uh, justifications that were propped up while uh, abrogating article 370 for any thinking person the questions were if it was so good why is it that so many restrictions had been imposed hmm. there's been complete denial ever since and the officials became more and more inaccessible as time went by i mean initially there were restrictions in some areas there were more in some areas there were less there there was the internet ban uh, in kashmir valley in uh, muslim majority areas of jammu region there was a partial internet ban throughout the state uh, so it made the access to um, several uh, officers 
very difficult. Other than that, there was an overwhelming uh, climate of fear. So even stories that had to be done regarding health, regarding education, it was just so difficult to get uh, an official version from anybody. The doctors were unwilling to speak. Um, the officers were unwilling to speak or were uh, inaccessible. And that, uh, I think, even after the internet ban was was not there and uh, the restrictions had eased, the inaccessibility of officials remains a, an issue. Hmm. If you, um, reporters, if they ask uh, the officers for a version of the story, and particularly with related to, you know, uh, militancy-related stories where uh, the actions of the security forces are under question for um, violating standard operating procedures or there are allegations of human rights violations or of staged encounters. Hmm. Uh, The questions are either not taken, not entertained, the officers don't pick up the phone or they keep parrying your questions or they now now it's so brazen that they just tell the reporters okay don't do this story there would be consequences right could you take us through the days and weeks following that unprecedented communications blackout uh, specifically as an editor could you at all reach any of your reporters of staff uh, what were you able to publish then um Surely as a journalist working in Kashmir for decades, it wasn't the first time you were facing the challenge of how to communicate. But how was this different? Within the state, except in Jammu, uh, the Hindu majority areas of Jammu region, where we were in touch with our staffers, though it was difficult for some of them to reach office or, uh, you know, they, they were relying on mobile internet, which was not available. So they had to travel a bit of distance and try to get uh, connectivity from other places. But these were the areas where there were lesser stories. The more stories were in the areas that were more militarized and there was no connectivity at all. Okay. I think for uh, weeks together, we had no connectivity or even more than uh, months uh, in, in Rajori, Punch in the Chenab Valley, where there was a complete silence. In Kashmir, again, uh, the similar problem uh, existed till uh, 16th of August, where 17th of August, rather, I got the first call from my uh, bureau chief from that kiosk that had been set up, which was called the Media Facilitation Center, which the government had set up to facilitate media persons to be uh, to wo- work from that area now over 200 people working out of a space with where three computers had been put up under complete surveillance so it was impossible to actually work you you know you had to jostle for space you could hardly get 5 minutes uh, there was one mobile phone where all phone numbers were being noted of uh, the person calling and the person who had been called. Hmm. And this was the situation. So the first one week, we really had nothing. We had no idea of whether our staffers were safe or not, because uh, Kashmir has had a history, Hmm. uh, which is not very pleasing, where, um, uh, you know, journalists 
uh, among many others, have been uh, the target of the militants of the uh, Indian um, administration of the security forces, um, and which is so easy to do in a militarized area. Yeah. What we were actually doing was relying on uh, official handouts. We were relying on reports from Delhi and using them as sources. Uh, the only other thing we could do was, uh, you know, try and reach out where were the people's voices. You know, these were completely missing. If there was something appearing in the national or the foreign media, we tried to pick it up, tried to verify as much as we could and use these as sources. We scanned the social media and tried to look at voices uh, where, you know, there were some people who had traveled out of Srinagar. So trying to reach out to them and get a sense of what was happening. But uh, there wasn't much that we could get because most people who were coming out, interestingly, had knew only what was happening in their own homes. Hmm. Or maybe, uh, you know, what was happening next door or what was happening on the, in the, through the distance between their homes and the airport. So these were very, very sketchy stories, very insignificant stories. But this is the best that we could do. And it's only gradually that the other stories came. But uh, by then, you know, there was an, also an overwhelming uh, climate of fear. Many of the journalists had uh, kind of self-censored themselves in that climate of fear and were unwilling to uh, speak. Uh, the fear was genuine. Okay. Uh, Ms. Basin, I want to ask you, at the time, uh, how much of this um, so-called normalcy in Kashmir narrative being put forth by much of the Delhi-based mainstream media, particularly television news, uh, were you aware of? And how did that make you and other journalists who risk far more than any of us do feel? The whole uh, national uh, media narrative was just so unnatural. Okay. It was in contradiction with the history of Kashmir, with the landscape of Kashmir, uh, the political landscape of Kashmir that uh, we have been accustomed to in the last, particularly in the last 30 years. And anybody who's familiar with Kashmir would know that uh, something drastically wrong is happening within. Hmm. There are voices that are unheard. The immediate uh, thing was, you know, in the days before uh, the abrogation of Article 370, it had become clear that something is happening. Nobody knew exactly what. Um, and so there was just, there were rumors, there were guesses, there were a lot of these uh, you know, helicopter sorties that had been going on uh, throughout the previous nights. And there was fear and panic that there would be massive airstrikes. And uh, those were the, you know, the, the first uh, one or two days that we could not hear any voices. Those were the fears that there, there, there have been massive, uh, maybe uh, killings, bloodshed. Well, thankfully, that did not happen. But uh, what was missing in those stories were also the, you know, the huge number of people arrested. And the, by the, within a day that we got to know that the entire political brass had been arrested. So it was common sense that anybody who was somebody and even, even commoners, uh, they won't have been spared. If uh, three former chief ministers 
could be incarcerated hmm. uh, without any substantial reason. Uh, what was the safety of the commoners? Right. And as a journalist also, I mean, these, these were questions before us. I mean, this was a major story and uh, we were just unable to tell. Which is when you decided to move Supreme Court. Journalism has always been a razor's edge walk, you know, in, in, in Jammu and Kashmir, always. Hmm. Uh, and we faced many, many challenges. Uh, in uh, Earlier also, I mean, in situations of curfew, in situations of restrictions, uh, reporting and publishing has uh, been challenged, severely challenged. In 2010, in 2013, newspapers could not be published for several days. In 2016, newspaper offices were raided and newspapers were seized and, uh, you know, were not allowed to be circulated. Uh, even before that, in the 90s, I remember um, when I was a young reporter, the the transmission tower somewhere in Banihal uh, between Jammu and uh, Srinagar had been blown off and the STD calls were not uh, feasible. And, um, you know, everything else connected with that, those new technologies, the teleprinters, the telex machines and fax machines were not working. So we went back to the old system of um, the trunk call dialing. Oh, and uh, we used to have back-to-back lightning trunk call uh, booked uh, so that, uh, you know, the the Bureau from Srinagar could uh, virtually dictate stories on phone and uh, we would take notes and uh, type it out in, in, in Jammu office. And that's how we operated. But it was never an absolute freeze. Hmm. So this situation was unprecedented. There was a complete freeze. There was absolute silence. You know, an entire population pushed behind an iron wall. You can't hear those voices. You can't reach out to them. And uh, these are areas that uh, have a history of, uh, you know, violations, of, of massive violations. So it was, uh, it was just so drastic and it required drastic uh, actions. And that was the only option I had. Uh, what about routinely? Um, is the detention, even the arrest of journalists, uh, more common in Kashmir than anywhere else in the country? How uh, easy is it for a journalist to be picked up or detained with no apparent justifiable cause? Uh, by easy, I also mean, does it pretty much go unchallenged? To be fair, this has been happening even before 2019. Um, it's been happening forever. In the 90s, of course, it was a different uh, situation when uh, journalists were caught between the two guns of the militants and the security forces and, uh, um, and an oppressive atmosphere where there was physical threat to life. Uh, journalists would be picked up, they would be beaten up and, and by both sides. Hmm. Um, and in, you know, post 2010, we saw more of this uh, method of squeezing publications, uh, arm twisting them into towing their line by stopping their advertisement flow. And the entire reliance of the regional newspapers in Jammu and Kashmir has been the government ads. Right. So that uh, had been going on for quite some time, but it, it, it was much more subtle. Now it became more and more brazen hmm. uh, that um, 
you know you could uh, earlier the criticism the government expected that the criticism would be mild now there was complete intolerance to uh, criticism and that keeps increasing and the more you toe their line the more they want you to just become amplifiers of uh, the government narrative hmm. and and uh, even those uh, publications that have been towing the line of uh, the government in uh, uh, you know hoping that their ads advertisements will not be stopped and they will be able to publish or that uh, you know cases will not be lodged against them or raids will not happen which is happening but you know even for minutest of criticism you know these punitive actions are being taken against them and uh, this is not just happening with editors it's also happening with reporters who are working for these newspapers it's happening with reporters who are working for the national press who are reporters who are working for foreign press or the freelancers and the freelancers in fact uh, much more now the reporters are called to and uh, summoned to police stations these are verbal summons you know they are not even legal summons uh but you are expected to go if you don't go there would be consequences okay uh they could land up at, at your home they could harass your family they could raid your houses take away your uh, electronics and if you um if the journalists uh, you know take the summons seriously visit the police stations they have been harassed they have been subjected to grueling interrogation for hours they have been abused and even slapped hmm. um cases have been filed against them and now journalists are supposed to file some verification uh, forms which also require parting with uh, personal information personal information of themselves of their family members um, you know to uh, so that uh, the government can you know acknowledge them as bona fide journalists so oh. what about threats from militants um i haven't seen of examples in you know this new wave of militancy in the last 10 years uh if they pose to uh, any threat to uh, media you know there may be a few aberrations but uh, and that's primarily because the new breed of militants they are relying more on the so they you know initially they were relying on the social media right they seem to have their own network that they are operating uh, out of you know they they're not relying on the media anymore hmm so those threats on the media are not there okay uh could you tell us talk to us about journalists of national dailies and tv channels posted in kashmir uh, over the decades what has been your understanding of whether or not they are able to accurately convey what's happening in the state and how much of that is censored by the editors in delhi uh and have you seen a visible change in national media coverage of kashmir much of it has always been censored by editors in delhi um even when there was there were no television uh, channels the good old times you know it wasn't just newspapers uh, you know journalists in delhi have often viewed kashmir from a very ultra nationalist uh, perspective and so most of their staffers posted in uh, kashmir are kashmiris hmm. and 
often they do not trust even those uh, reporters because of their uh, maybe ethnic or religious affiliations or because they feel that they would be more hamstrung with the local issues so they've been flowing in teams from um, or reporters from delhi to um, kashmir valley you know whenever something big happened despite the fact that the bureau or the staffer is existing there and there were occasions i heard of at least uh, you know some reporters who conveyed to me who had been visiting from delhi and who had filed their reports and their reports were killed uh, they were not carried uh, and instead uh, news agency um, you know pti uni news bulletins were uh, preferred over their own exclusive reports so you there was always a lot of censorship but you know some among there was a lot of dwarfing of what was uh, certain news that would be critical of the government uh, of the uh, military hmm. and uh, or or complete blanking out of that but uh, you know some uh, bit of uh, reportage would still be there would which would effectively bring out the larger picture of kashmir and i i think that's uh, that space is shrinking even more now hmm. uh, it doesn't exist at all uh, at least in the print media in television channels i mean you see a completely different thing i mean television uh, uh, news uh, there's hardly i think uh, the local reporter would get a minute or so to say and and has already been trained how to say it and what to say and then what limited to say and the rest of the news has been converted into uh, you know these opinionated uh, panel discussions which are so one sided uh, where the panelists are not even allowed to speak in the name of debate and you you just see that space within the indian media shrinking for uh, with regard to speaking the truth about uh, kashmir with regard to informing the nation about kashmir and the only silver lining is uh, the digital media platforms some of which are doing a great job um what about do you do you see the rest of india as being uh, suspicious of and largely antagonistic in how they view kashmiris um and how about vice versa uh, and would you say that a large part of the blame lies on the doorstep of the press of course of course the media has shaped that narrative the media has shaped that kind of a notion about a kashmiri where a kashmiri exists only as a terrorist at best the better image of uh, the kashmiri in the media is you know somebody who's hospitable who's connected with the tourism industry but seen essentially as a bot trapped between uh, in a tr- territory where a kashmiri has no agency no aspiration no emotion okay so that that kind of picture is something that we owe to the media which you know consistently built up over the years and vice versa yes definitely because when this image of a kashmiri that captures the mind of uh, you know the nation's mind they tend to celebrate 
the misery of the Kashmiris, thinking that this is the best thing that could happen to the nation. This is the best thing that could happen to Kashmir. Hmm. Uh, speaking from a very patronizing uh, position or uh, even a sadistic position, that creates a certain mindset about Indians in the minds of Kashmiris. That's how they see India and that's how they see in Indians. You know, earlier, Kashmiris would be critical of uh, the Indian state. There was anger against the Indian state for what it was doing. There was anger against the Indian state's agencies for what they were doing. Uh, right from manipulation of politics to militarization to tyranny to human rights violations and other things. Hmm. But now they see also, they, there's also anger against the uh, Indians, Indian citizens, the normal Indians for what they, uh, you know, for how they have celebrated their misery. If you saw the comments, you know, post-2019, um, how... You know, people re- regaled and rejoice. We will go and marry Gori Gori Ladkia, or we'll buy nice land somewhere near uh, the Dal Lake. And um, that kind of um, a narrative, I, I, I don't think it, it just uh, widens the gulf between the two. Okay. Um, and all this, what kind of a toll does all this take? on the mental health of the Kashmiri journalist? Uh, immense, immense, uh, you know, psychological pressure all the time. And uh, particularly now, it's just very, very tiring. It's, um, and, and when there's fear all the time, you know, initially, earlier there was, as I said, physical threat from both sides. Today, it's not just physical threat. The the threat exists in different forms. Tyranny exists in much more subtle forms, more invisible forms. There could be cases slapped against you. There could be raids against you. Uh, You could just be, uh, you know, and I I spoke to journalists and then they spoke also of constant fear of, you know, uh, somebody just uh, hitting their car while they're going back home. And these are very genuine fears that come up. There are fears that your family members would be targeted because that is happening. And that is something very difficult to live with. Hmm. I think like the larger population, I think journalists today, how it's difficult for them to bring out a story of others, you know, because half the time they're grappling with their own depressions their own, uh, the mental trauma that they are dealing with constantly. And every other story that they do, that also adds to their mental trauma because uh, when you report another person's story and you're reporting another person's misery and you're reporting something that is, you know, even new policies that would have larger repercussions and when you start working on that, you know, even that weighs so heavily on your mind. Well, despite the many challenges you have faced, Anuradha Bhaseen, you continue to be uh, a prominent voice on the subject of free speech. I want to close by asking you about um, the fact that you and Patricia Mukhim, editor of the Shillong Times, have now moved to Supreme Court challenging the constitutional validity of 124A, India's much-abused sedition law. Talk to us about how you and Patricia got together uh, and your hopes from the Supreme Court. How we see it is... 
सिडिशन हैज नॉट बीन यूज अगेंस्ट एनी जर्नलिस्ट और मीडिया पर्सन इन जम्मू एंड कश्मीर सो फार बट वेन यू सी द नंबर्स राइजिंग अक्रॉस इंडिया एंड यू नो इन द वे दैट इट इज बींग यूज अगेंस्ट अपार्ट फ्रॉम अदर लॉज अगेंस्ट मीडिया पर्सन इट्स इट्स मच मोर फ्राइटनिंग for uh, journalists living in the peripheries hmm. uh, what patricia mukhim i mean northeast situation and kashmir has been very very similar and though in north kashmir there were uh, one or two odd cases where sedition had been slapped against journalists and which is why i think it all started with patricia because patricia was worried about it and we uh, were having this conversation and we were aware of how particularly differently it could be used in these peripheral areas where it uh, you know journalists or even other activists could be targeted uh, and it would be in the national imagination you know it would be still legitimized because of the ethnic or religious identities of the people who are the target of that law Hmm. uh you know for instance if somebody from nagaland or uh, manipur or a kashmiri muslim is to be slapped with a sedition charge i could can actually visualize how the uh, television channel uh, you know anchors would just go ballistic over you know uh, demonizing that uh, that that person and and would do it with so much legitimacy and the nation would believe it so we we thought it was important to i think it was more patricia's initiative and uh, but i agreed with her so i joined well more part to you uh thank you anuradha basin for joining us on this podcast and thank you for what you do thank you thanks also to our listeners uh, for having stayed with us through this conversation uh, that's it on the final episode of the year 2021 i'm going to be back next year Thank you.